0: Welcome to the Behind the Wind podcast. I'm Lauren Lane. For 50 years now, the LSI team has dedicated themselves to the science of business development. We've seen the impact of our work and how it's evolved into economic development and now social impact work. This week, Sean and I have the opportunity to meet with Dr. Natalie Grana, a world-renowned horn artist, Fulbright scholar, author, doctor of musical arts, and Sean's personal Alporn teacher. Sean and Dr. Grana are gonna talk about the process of learning something new as an adult, Solfege, and what it means to be a good student. Let's start playing.
1: Well, thanks for doing this, Dr. Natalie Grana, one of my most favorite people in the world. Thank you for being here. How cold is it in Chicago?
0: Oh my gosh, I actually, I should, have got my space heater going. I think it's in the
1: single digits. It's not warm. It's not warm for sure when i left my house this morning it was minus 10. it w- it is so cold here oh, so I-
0: oh, I- okay so i don't get to
1: complain well, what you're saying i mean this is it's fun for me as you know we have had so this many is, this, this is your favorite i love this i love this time of year i love it when it's cold it's cold sunny those ice crystals are in the air it's just awesome i think it's so fun we've had so many celebrities on our podcast congressmen senators captains of industry but we have never had such a famous musician and author and performer as you thank you for doing this it's amazing
0: well i don't know about all that but i am absolutely thrilled to be here so thank you for having
1: me so how this came about last year we did Sort of by accident, Lauren and I recorded four episodes on attitude, lifelong learning, hard work, and goal setting. And it was just my thoughts. A lot of this came from Lauren and Jake on here's an idea that we should explore. And that second episode of Lifelong Learning, which I talked, I I don't know how this came about. It just... I. I was thinking about our time together and your ability to help me learn something new. It came out of that. And we had such an amazing response and visibility from that episode that our communications team said, Who is Dr. Grana? Who in the heck is this Dr. Grana that you talked about and obviously are so enamored with? So, jake and lauren said let's have her let's have her do an episode with us so that's how this started it just emanated from that episode from last year so you're one of my most favorite people in the world i admire you so much i'm so honored to have this time with you and talk about our history together and and just talk about your work which is so amazing at such a young age talk about your background, and how did you become such a famous author and musician and professor?
0: So I guess from the very beginning, I was always wanting to be involved in music. My older sister played bassoon in orchestra, and I was fascinated by that. I used to go to her concerts and could not wait to join an ensemble and landed on French horn and was sort of the worst kid in the band, actually, from the get-go, because I didn't have any musical training before I started an instrument. And so, like, I didn't sing, I didn't play piano, I, you know, I didn't read the notes on the page. And learning the horn was very, very difficult for me for that reason. There's sort of multiple things happening, right, when you're learning music. You're learning physically how to play an instrument, like an actual For for Sean, it's the Alphorn and also, I guess, now the French horn, but clarinet, you know, whatever, flute, you name it. You're learning how to physically, what we call tone production, make a sound on the instrument. But then there's also this added component of music literacy, right? Music is a language. And so here I am at eight years old, not only trying to learn how to hold a French horn and blow into a French horn and make it make sound, but also look at sheet music and be able to read it like I would read text. So again, kind of two components, right? There's the conceptual and there's the physical. Anyway, it uh, wasn't going well for me because I, try- I was completely novice at both. And now having done the, the studies that I have, we are, of course, and this makes sense. This would be, I think, intuitive for anybody regardless of their musical background. It's much easier to learn an instrument when you're already musically literate, right? Unfortunately, in the U.S., we tend to jump right into physically playing an instrument in an ensemble. We love band here. Everybody tends to approach music through a large ensemble, which was my right. The case for me and many, many other students. And so I just because I couldn't read music was just guessing all the time. trying to play the right notes and rhythms and had no idea what was going on. And really, honestly, sincerely, it was like the worst one in the band. I remember there was a a bench next to a flagpole right outside the band room and we had band after school and my mom would come and pick me up. I would, I would wait for her to pick me up and I would just sit on that bench and I would just cry because I, I wanted to be involved in music so badly, but uh, it was not going well.
1: Was this because Uh, of your sister? You you just admired your sister and you wanted to emulate your sister?
0: Partially emulating her, but then also, I mean, it's just music itself. I was I was really captivated by it. I remember the first time I heard the first piece I ever remember hearing and being really attached to was uh, Rimsky korsakov Shaherazad. Just I, like hearing these orchestral pieces and being like, "This is just so beautiful and so amazing." Anyway, I, I'm getting I'm I'm getting I'm being too long winded here. Um, I Love it. So I stuck with horn out of just sheer determination, stubbornness, even though it wasn't going well. And decided to major in music in college because I wanted to teach music. And freshman year of college, I had to take what was called aural training class, which is a class where you learn what's called solfege. You probably, you, I mean the audience here, know what solfege is. You just didn't know what the name of it is. It's the do, Re mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, the system of adding one syllable per note of the scale. And by using these different syllables, we can train ourselves to look at a piece of music. And by using the syllables, sort of like we attach sounds to letters on the page if we're reading English, um, by using the syllables, we can we re- rearrange them to sing the different pitches on the page, to hear the pitches on the page, like I would, like I said, text, if I was reading English. And so all of a sudden, all this comes together for me that I can like really look at a piece of music and hear it and internalize it. And of course, then my horn playing just like takes off, like things seem much more intuitive because I have sort of this very, very strong sense of the sound that I want to create on my horn. And so I knew at that moment, freshman year of college, oh my God, this solfege thing, don't I mean, is so valuable and so awesome Why, okay, first of all, why am I 18? I've played the horn for 10 years. Why am I just learning it now? Like, this would have been valuable a long time ago. And how can I now combine these two things? Because I knew that if I had learned this when I was in fourth grade, like so many years of suffering would have been saved. So I ended up doing, like I said, my music ed undergrad. And then I did a master's in French horn performance and a doctorate in French horn performance and dedicated my dissertation to integrating what we call aural training or solfege training into how to how we teach and learn the instrument and then did a Fulbright scholarship in Hungary where I basically just got my patoot kicked for a year on solfege training and uh, wrote a book on that experience uh, giving exercises basically for horn players to learn by ear to have a very strong concept before they try to play the instrument. That it can read fluently what's what's written on the page. Music, uh, read music fluently. So that's sort of me in a nutshell. Uh, just a lot, basically a lot of damage. A lot of a lot of. I'm coming. I'm coming here with a lot of, uh, you know, post traumatic stress from trying to learn the horn kind of backwards as a kid. Really is what it is. So,
1: how did you pick up French horn?
0: Well, honestly, I was like the weirdest kid they needed a french horn player i wanted to play bassoon like my sister but they told me i was too small which in fairness i was a little peanut i mean oh, i think the
1: bassoon like, was bigger than that you physically could not
0: i mean i probably was about as tall instrument? as the bassoon when i wanted to play yeah Do you, can you picture i mean it's it's like four feet it's a well it, it, I mean, the <laughs> the joke name is it's a farting head post it really is just like a big piece of wood like a four I don't know three or four feet long with a billion keys on it and I don't have big hands anyway band director said no way can't play bassoon got to pick something else they didn't have any horn players and I didn't want to play you know clarinet or flute like all the other girls so I wanted to play something different so here I was uh, I played French horn I also I had heard uh Peter and Wolf that Prokofiev. I don't know if you know that piece by Prokofiev where all the different animals. So all the different characters are are instruments and the wolf is the horn. And I thought that was pretty awesome. So I was, it was an easy sell. It was an easy sell to move me over to horn. So here I am now this many years later.
1: And at an early age, you decided that you were going to pursue music as your career and passion. What, and you did your undergraduate at the University of Cincinnati. What, how did that happen? Why the University of Cincinnati?
0: You know, actually I did, I did my doctorate at Cincinnati, but I did my undergraduate at the University of Illinois and that I'll be, no, that's fine. Uh, I'll be t- truly honest with you. I, and I'm very proud of my degree from the University of Illinois. It's, it suited me very well, but I was like said, greener than green. I mean, I didn't, I was the first person in my family to major in music. And so I didn't know, I didn't know what good music schools were. I didn't know uh, anything about auditioning or excerpts or uh, Solo, I mean like I was I was absolutely bumping around in the dark figuring this out so I'm I, like my dad's a marine I was raised in a pretty practical family and so I was like okay where can I get certified in state and not spend a lot of money and that was the University of Illinois. I'm underselling it though. it was a wonderful degree. You know, love you, all of you in champagne. I'm very glad I went there, but I can't say that um, like, oh, I had I mean, by the time I got to my doctorate and I went to CCM in Cincinnati, I obviously had a very clear idea of what my objectives and knew what to do. But freshman year of college man, I was whew, was
1: I was guessing I didn't know what I was doing. So you grew up in Chicago, went to the University of Illinois. Did you live at home while you were doing your undergrad?
0: No, no, no. That's a good a uh,
1: like a three
0: hour drive. Yeah. I, I grew up, I grew up up north, up north of the city. So that's a, yeah, that's a fair piece. So I, I lived in, I lived in Urbana.
1: Urbana's where all the weird kids are. And then Champagne's where all the cool kids are. <laughs> decided you were going to pursue a master's degree, went to University of Cincinnati. Was there, some, was there something that compelled you to go to the University of Cincinnati?
0: So actually I stayed in Illinois and did my master's in horn performance there because there was a new professor coming in that Sean actually knows. His name's Bernard Scully. Right. Amazing. He was playing with the Canadian brass previously. He, oh my God, I just, oh my heart. I, I love Bernard so much. He is like my mentor, my friend. I I just absolutely, absolutely adore him. So he was coming in when I when I was finishing my undergrad, so I got to stay there but change teachers, which is a really, really ideal situation. Then when it came time for me to do my doctorate, I very much wanted to study with a man named Randy Gardner, who I call my Yoda. I had seen him, well, actually I, I first purchased his book called Mastering the Horns Low Register when I was in high school and just idolized him. He played second horn with the Philadelphia Orchestra for a very long time. And it's just incredibly well-versed, not only in the repertoire, he, like said, having that experience playing with Philadelphia, he knows these pieces inside and out and knows how to coach auditions and all these things, but he's also equal parts teacher. He taught at CCM for, I don't know how many years before he left, but he was just exceptional when it came to methodically explaining things, having multiple ways of explaining things. I saw him speak at, this was in 2008 in Denver, at the International Horn Society Symposium. He gave us a talk on beginning horn pedagogy. And as soon as I saw him speak, I was like, I I have to study with this person. I just, I just, I just knew it. You know, I have this like lightning bolt sort of Reaction to to hearing him, and so thankfully, the year that I applied, there was a, a graduate assistantship open. So that meant not only that like my tuition was covered and I got stipended, but more importantly, that I got to do some teaching as a doctoral student. So I started teaching the undergraduate studio class that met every week, working with freshmen freshmen through seniors on all sorts of things. Like I said, tone production. Music literacy, auditions, all these sorts of things, varied topics in music, and just being Randy Gardner's right hand, I, I learned so much from him. I owe so much of who I am and my own musicianship to having studied with him. He was just an exceptional mentor, and I'm continually grateful for him.
1: I got to meet Randy last year in New Hampshire, and he, he's an amazing individual I think it's interesting that in music, I, I maybe there's other disciplines that have this as well. But I think in music, I hear this so many times that these musicians that I'm that I admire and try to emulate. I think it's interesting that they have this. that The pedigree is so important to them, and so I mean, you talked about Bernard and and Randy. Being a lot of the reason that you pursued music as a as a career, and you owe a lot to them. Is that is I mean is that common in music that you you have this pedigree? I see it a lot. I am just an observation, but is that something important? I studied with this master who studied for this master that, and and that pedig- pedigree is is critical to your career.
0: You know, it's funny. We did this, I have, I have two thoughts in this regard. The first was that when I was at CCM and like I said, I was teaching studio class for Randy Gardner on occasion, I had a day where we did a family tree and everybody would list their teacher, their teachers, and then their teacher, teachers, right? And so we grandfathered up. I actually, it's funny because <laughs> Sean did meet Randy Gardner at kind of a torn camp in New Hampshire last year. I Bernard. called him his horn grandfather. Yes, yeah, I, was, I, was like, I was like, you get to meet your horn grandfather because, like, right? Because he was my teacher. Anyway, we did a family tree, and it's incredible. Actually, by the time you trace back like one or two generations, we've all had like the same teachers. So you find that like all of these connections, you know, that all of these ideas are kind of springing from actually the same people. But the other thing I'll say is music is a meritocracy i think that really having a name behind your like uh, you, you asked about like is it important that you studied with this person or went to this place when you go to an audition you can have an eighth grade diploma and play the horn like play the horn great and nobody cares auditions are blind you're behind a screen and but the opposite is also true. You could have gone to Juilliard, and you could show up and play terribly, and you're out. I mean, like they don't they don't care. It's like everything is is based on merit. And so I think less important from a like in terms of your your career, less important from a, oh I'm going to get this position because I studied here with this person. But of course. Finding the right person and having them as a mentor is the only way that you're going to, I, I, you absolutely, us isn't important. Finding the right teacher to guide you is of course the, it's essential. There's no way there's just, there's no way to, it, to, to, to go it alone really in music. I mean, I guess, I guess, I don't know, maybe you could facilitate, uh, with a lot of YouTube videos and, but I, no, I, I take it back. It, there's just, if there's no way you have to have, you have to have that guiding spirit and that guiding
1: force. So talk about your time in Hungary as a Fulbright scholar. Talk, I mean, first talk about what is the Fulbright program, which is amazing. And then I'd love to hear about your time in Hungary.
0: Sure. Absolutely. So like said, I dedicated my dissertation during my doctorate to these aural training methods uh, that we could write, that we could hear, that we have like a very clear image hearing in our mind before we play. And so I was looking at methodologies for how to teach this, right? And there's different music methodologies. I think probably the most famous one that people might respond to um, in the audience is Suzuki method. This is sort of, I, I feel like people know about this with the violin. Or Delcros, all of these different, you know, people that have kind of codified different approaches to music education. And so when I was looking at how to how to teach RL concepts, I, I went at CCM. We had faculty that specialized in all these different methodologies and interviewed them and asked them, you know, for resources and things I could look at. And became enamored when I met with the person that uh, is the code eye specialist there. Her name's Ava Floyd, Dr. Ava Floyd. So Kodai is a Hungarian, was, I should say, uh, he's no longer with us, was a Hungarian music educator, also a composer, philosopher, very good friends with Béla Bartók, for people who might know the composer Béla Bartók. And he developed this singing-based approach to music education. He used a lot of folk songs Mm -hmm. and things that became systematic throughout Hungary. And solfege is everywhere there. It's it's like they treat it there like we do math or science or STEM or English. Like music is considered part of the standard curriculum within the day. And so, I was looking at these singing-based methods, these Kodai-based methods, and could just tell, oh my gosh, this would work beautifully for horn players. It would just just naturally. I could use the books today, like they're fantastic. So I started using Kodai methods with horn players and were just eating it up. Like I would go and do these workshops and things and horn players were like, this is just incredible. This is incredible. So I, I just, I love Kodai and I was loving this approach to solfege and felt a teensy bit, even though I was doing all this research and my dissertation, I felt a little bit like a fraud because I'd never been to Hungary. I'd never really immersed myself in Kodai. And I love travel. I had always wanted to do a Fulbright. How did you and hear it? so about I guess it? I should actually explain. The first time I ever heard about the Fulbright um, was from Jeff Agrell, actually, who taught horn at the University of Iowa. And he played in the orchestra in Lucerne hmm. in Switzerland for many years. And I remember asking him about that, like, oh, that seems like the coolest thing to go play in Europe. And he goes, well, you should consider a Fulbright. It's, you know, have the government send you over to Europe. So the Fulbright grant was started after World War II. There was a senator by the last name of Fulbright. And everybody in Congress is looking at each other like, how do we, how do we avoid that happening again? How do we avoid you know, World War II and promote sort of engagement between countries and mutual understanding and appreciation and respect? And so Fulbright... Proposed that there be a certain amount of funds appropriated every year to send dollars, researchers, creative minds abroad on specified projects, and to sort of be cultural ambassadors. That's what they call the cultural ambassadors. Like the fanciest, <laughs> it's the fanciest thing it could ever possibly be called. Be cultural ambassadors for the United States. So now uh, it's a, it's an annual sort of competition that you send in a proposed research study of some kind. Mine was to go to Hungary and again, just get my butt kicked in solfege for a year and really learn and immerse myself in Kodai method. And then I, that I would uh, sort of write materials, come back to the United States and, and be able to teach in this format. So that's exactly what I did. Uh, It's a very, very long and intensive application process because i mean the the united states is spending a bunch of money on on sending you abroad and making sure that you're going to represent the country well and that you're going to actually fulfill what it is you promised to deliver all these things so a lot of written interviews and written materials and all sorts of things but um
1: i think you're so humble in (laughs) in stating that you're a fulbright scholar i mean just to give people an understanding of what this is mostly it is Harvard Yale Princeton Ivy League post doctorate candidates right and you cannot believe the list of celebrities that are your alumni and as uh, Fulbright scholars that include
0: Renee Fleming Renee Fleming did Renee a Fulbright
1: Fleming. Linus Pauling, Del Chahuli, who Oh, United, I know. I'm like
0: United so proud United. of you. About, yeah.
1: Him, right? Aaron Copeland. And then a lot of political individuals uh, Bill Clinton, Nelson Mandela, Colin Powell, Bill, uh, Angela Merkel. Bono just was awarded a Fulbright Award last uh, two years ago, I think. So, I mean, natalie you're in this company of royalty and so you i i think it's funny you always downplay this this is amazing that you had this opportunity and that you share this award with these other amazing geniuses which is
0: yeah i i I snuck in there i just blow hot hot air through that's all i do it was like the best year I shouldn't say it was the best year of my life because I've since gotten married and <laughs> like I love my husband uh it but it was just just an unbelievable year I would not be the person the musician that I am without that year it completely transformed me it was incredible in every single way I just had the most incredible time I I would love to I dream I I don't think a day goes by I don't think about hungry it It's just with me always. It's always present. I I love it so much.
1: I dream of going back all the time. So let's talk about your time there and you studying sulfedge. You talked a little about how, I mean, sulfedge is a discipline. But uh, for a lot of people that don't understand the history and the the mechanics of sulfedge, let's let's talk about that. Talk about the history of sulfedge. Talk about how sulfedge originated and in central and eastern europe primarily right
0: this is a century
1: old tradition yeah so i found some antique books that were written written in the mid-1800s that talked about solfege which solfege came about the the term solfege came about through two of the syllables sol and fa that came together as Solfege. But what I didn't realize, I mean, you and I have been working Solfege for so long now, but that it was from the 10th century. It was a, I think he was a Franciscan monk, a Catholic monk, uh, Arizo, who took the Catholic hymn, St. John the Baptist, and took the first syllables of this hymn, ut, that now is do, re, mi, fa, sol la, T, and then T, T was added later from the syllables of this hymn and used it as the as a syllable for each of the scale in C, which yeah. I love that. I love that history.
0: Yeah. Uh, did you know you know, say something runs the gamut or we talk about the gamut? Yeah. So it used to be that dough was called Oot. And I don't know. I don't know enough. My selfish history isn't good enough. It was
1: Latin. It was all, it was a Latin word for John the Baptist, the, the hymn of John the Baptist, right? So Oot, and then we changed I, it to dough. Yeah, I don't know
0: why it changed to dough. But Oot, so gamma Oot is the lowest, gamma is the lowest Oot, like so the um, lowest pitch, the lowest dough. And so when you say something runs the gamut or the, the gamut, it's just like all the way back to the lowest, like it's all, it's okay, you know, all of it. So that's where the term gamut comes from. It's literally gamma oot. So just a little, just a little, piece. you know, that there's like some jeopardy knowledge for you sometime, you know, <laughs> a little
1: bit so when I tell people that I've learned music through solfege and they, they, most people in the U S have never heard it, even in Western Europe. Most people in Western Europe don't know about it until I say you've watched The Sound of Music. You know that Maria right. taught the kids how started music lessons with this with the kids in The Sound of Music through this Do Re Mi Fa Sol La Ti Do. That is solfege, and then as I explain it to them, that it it makes sense. But that's this has been going on for over a thousand years in in Central and Eastern Europe.
0: Yeah. I think Julie Andrews did more for solfege in whatever year The Sound of Music came out than like centuries. (laughs) You know, we owe her. We owe uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein's. Yes, a lot. Just like Ricola for the Elkhorn, right? I mean,
1: (laughs) so I think it's it's got this amazing tradition, a lot of science behind it. I love what I loved is when one of the first times you and I met, you talked about how. When you learn a new language as a child, that you learn through listening, repeating, writing, reading, and then writing. And as you said, in Western Europe and in the U.S., we typically teach music by here's here's some music, read it. And that this concept of solfege where you listen, you then sing, you read and then right is the natural progress, progression how we learn a language it really is rooted in that science of learning a new language
0: absolutely and i i remember so distinctly when i was in hungary we would go do class observations and they were all in hungarian and my hungarian is like kiki kichi like i just have a little bit of hungarian under my belt but like new enough and of course music's international, right? So, so much of it, you could intuit just by watching. I watched a kindergarten class with a wonderful teacher and she started the day, these little kids, and she, she walked around the room. They're all kind of sitting. She said, you know, means good morning, everyone, really like good morning. And uh, the kids were all singing back. And then she would do a different pattern. It's the same two pitches, which is in the scale, the fifth note and the third note. These kids, they're how old old are you in kindergarten? Six? I don't know. They're not thinking like, oh, so me. Okay. The fifth and third scale degree. No, they're just playing games. They're repeating after the teacher. Um, Or she would do a different thing with, I can't remember how to say the name now. What is your, she would say uh, in Hungarian, what is your name? My name's Mikolash, you know, or whatever. So these kids are playing around, they're playing games and just hearing and, and speaking and playing. And it's not until when they get a little older, okay, these are so me, but that pitch relationship has been ingrained from all kinds of repetitive play, fun play. So when you finally go to label it, notice, of course, like I said, we listened first and then we spoke. Then we will, then we will actually learn to read it on the page. But it's already there. It's already been instilled in your brain, right? It would be like again handing somebody a book and expecting them to to read it uh, like in English to read it out loud for you having never heard the English language like how how on earth would they possibly do that so there's just as you said a natural progression of listening speaking reading and then writing that works the most intuitively when you're when you're learning music but we tend to just go straight to the reading part unfortunately
1: so in this episode that Lauren and I recorded about lifelong learning I talked about how I had no music foundation i had couldn't read music i had been to S- switzerland on this business trip and fell in love with this music and the instrument of the alphorn and and had always in the back of my mind for 30 years thought at some point i would love to i just loved it i it's, it was emotional and spiritual and i it was a time in my life that I can still remember this vividly, hearing this old musician play this uh, most amazing music on the Alphorn horn and thought someday I'm gonna learn how to do that. Well, in 2019, I decided I'm gonna go down this path. I worked with our friend, a uh, common friend that you and I have, Tony Brazelton uh, for some time. And he finally, I mean, I'll never forget this. I'd been working with him During COVID, I mean, and I think if I look at how the stars align for me to meet you and go down this path, if COVID had not happened, I don't know if I would be doing this. I really don't. But I got Tony to come work with me after a lot of coercion. He came to my office. We played in our classified conference room, and I can remember him just At the end of 2020, I'd been working with him for some time since uh, probably March or April of 2020 through the end of the year. I can remember he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, "You are terrible. You need some. You just need a music foundation. You need to go to Weber State or you know one of these universities and get some music theory because you're you're done. You can't progress beyond where you are. Oh my goodness!" And then right after that, you and I met and. I remember you sent me an email uh, in early twenty. It, I don't know if it was the end of 2020 or early 2021. I've, I've sort of lost track of this, but I was going to go to Weber State University. I'd enrolled in their in their music program, and I was going to get a degree, pursue a degree at Tony's recommendation in music. And you said you sent me this email and said, "Don't do that. You, this this will that's not the right thing for you. I will help you with this." I mean, so maybe you can talk about your recollection of all of that. But I mean, that was magical that you saw and thought, I, maybe I could help this <laughs> <The> poor guy.
0: <laughs> well, right. you. I'm, so we met because you were on the podcast, uh, the owl porn right. podcast that Rob was interviewing me, Rob Baselton. And you and I were chatting and you told me your story about picking up the owl porn after hearing it. And I said to you, I said, so do you read music? And you you kind of said, no, not really. You know, I kind of play and I learn things. Like, I, I kind of listen and play. And I was, do you want to learn? <laughs> like, this is kind of like what I specialize in. And you just right after, you said, when can we meet? I mean, you were just so intrepid. Like, you were so hungry, for guidance, I can tell, you know, because Tony, that he, that our, our mutual friend, who is a fantastic Alpornist, is just not a teacher. It's just that kind of not what he does. By his own, admi- like, he he would tell you himself. He um,
1: recorded so. seven or eight, I don't know, a dozen albums on the Alporn. He's one of the most famous, most accomplished Alporn players in the world. I am so lucky to have known him and have the opportunity to play with him. And I get to play with him every week still but not a teacher. And I didn't read music and which was really holding me back.
0: Yeah. So anyway, so that's, that's kind of how that started it was just that I, I asked if you were interested in learning. Yes, yes, yes. And so, yes.
1: so I didn't go that, to, I didn't go to the university and I thought, okay, I'll see how this goes. You and I would meet a couple of times a week uh, via zoom and you're in Chicago. I'm in wherever I am in the world, which uh, <laughs> we would do this we we would meet when I was in all over the, in Europe, in DC and.
0: You've had lessons all over the world. I mean, it's, it's really incredible. And it speaks to your dedication, which is like truly, truly inspiring to me too.
1: Well, so here, I, I, I mean, I just can't believe that you and I crossed paths and that I had this opportunity to work with one of the most accomplished, most amazing uh, horn teachers in the world. And so shortly after you and I started talking, you said, I'm writing a book and I'm going to give you some of the. So I've got it here and I love it. It's so great. A singing approach to horn playing. And when it was finally published just last year, end of last year, and I got it and I went, oh, my goodness, these are all of my lessons that I. I love these songs. (laughs) So I mean. That was that was so fun to get this book and then go through this and say, oh, my goodness, this was the path that I took with Natalie. And I think I mean, you would write this and then you would you would give it to me and work, work it with me in my the, my various lessons as is, is you taught me music theory through Solfege. And it was just amazing. I remember that early on I and you you, you and I have talked about this a lot that I was so I mean, I, I can tell you, I was so embarrassed to to sing, and I never, I had no music background. I never had sung before to anybody, and I was just, I was so, I don't, I, I, I was embarrassed to to do this, and you kept, you know, pulling on this, and it was not going well. Talk about <laughs> the early days of us working together.
0: I can see it. I can remember where you were. You were in D.C. Actually, I think for our first lesson. And I would sing something and ask you to sing it back, and I could just tell that you were mortified. Like this was like, I, and you, I don't know how much you've told the audience and your, you know, like previously. I'm like you. Not only had you not done music, but like musical culture in your family, it was completely absent. It wasn't like, no, you know, you had a parent or a sibling or something that had that had kind of done this. I mean, like it was just you. You know, you would never sung or so. I just had to sort of reconfigure. Okay, we have to get him for before we do really any training. We have to get him comfortable with his voice, just singing, like anything, <laughs> anything at all. We're not even going to worry about reading notes on the page or anything else. Just getting used to singing and and being comfortable with your voice, with so much a part of it.
1: I look back and, on that, and I talked a lot about this in this. Recording that I did last year with Lauren on lifelong learning and just the humil—being able to s- be submissive and being humble enough to subject yourself to a lot of <laughs> failure. I and that—that's what it, I had never done anything in my life, and clearly not for 30 years had I done anything that I wasn't the best at. I had always been. My business is consulting, and I was expected at a young age when I was the CEO of this company to be the expert. And and I, I really had lost a the concept of being humble enough to learn something new. And you taught me how to be submissive, how to. It's I, I remember you would always say to me this is just new for you. It's okay. It's don't it. Yeah. You're not going to be good at it at, at first. We're going to work through this.
0: I, I say this to students
1: all the time,
0: all the time, because I, so I teach um, at DePaul university. I teach a class called RL training one, which is the soul fetch class that I told you I had my light bulb moment in freshman year of college. I teach that now, which I love, I love it. I love, I love working with the freshmen. I love singing. I love like it's, it's like my favorite but it is, it's like the organic chem for anybody who's like pre med, right? It's that class that everybody has to take that is like the weed out class. It's hard.
1: Everybody hates it. <laughs>
0: everybody hates it, except I do. I am I am the mom that pours Velveeta all over the broccoli. Like, nobody wants to eat broccoli, but I'm going to make this as damn delicious as I can for you. I really do try to make it fun, uh, but it's hard. It's really hard. That is a crier class.
1: I don't but think hey, I, I've got a, a year of. Uh, organic chemistry. So, just so you
0: know, <laughs> so you know exactly, it is a it is a prior class. I don't think I have ever taught a single semester of that class and not had somebody cry. It happens every
1: right. cry. So somebody when cried. I was crying, that was not that's that not unusual.
0: Not an isolated incident. I am so used to this. Oh my god! But but anyway, point being that i will let these students that they just that I can't do this. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this, and I say stop stop. You are new at this. Right. There is a big difference between being new at something and being bad at something. I always joke, I'm like, I'll tell you when you get to RL training for if you're bad. I'm just, <laughs> it's just a joke. But uh, being new at something, very different than being some uh, bad at something. I, in my music at undergrad, you have to take all of the instruments because you're certified to teach band for fourth grade where you have to teach clarinet and tuba and flute and you name it and i would always say i felt like half of the value of that class besides just learning you know how to actually physically play the instrument was just the process of being a complete beginner at something again because at that point you're competent on your instrument right i could play the french horn no problem And you tend to lose a sense of what it is to really start something completely brand new and how demoralizing it is. You know, here I am sitting in this class. oh my God, 8 a.m. oboe methods. (laughs) Uh, sitting there trying to play an oboe and just, you know, there's like 10 of us in the class. I mean, like, just imagine the worst sounds in the world. But going through that and the process of being new at something, I think it is so important. My husband's learning the cello right now is he's um he's also an, an economist uh he's an investments learning cello as an adult and kind of watching him go through that it's so uh sean knows i took swim lessons last year having never ever learned how to swim and it was like it was like my arms and legs weren't connected to my body it was like how how do i even walk down the street i'm so uncoordinated how do i do this we i think is so important for anybody i don't care what it is pick something be new with something it it's it's so important
1: so you and i worked together for about six months and i and let me tell you you i have never told you this before but natalie i so my my schedule is i've got these back-to-back meetings i mean i would do 10 or 12 meetings a day still do and I would see your name on my calendar and I would just go oh my gosh I it was it would give me anxiety I would I mean I was meeting with the US Congress with the administration <laughs> with all, and then I would see your name at the end of the day and I would just think oh my goodness I, I can't, I can't I do it would I would have so much just like anxiety and I think, oh, this is going to be horrible. You and I went for about seven months and it was just painful. I know for you, you probably have never had a student like me. I mean, you are working with the very best musicians in the world that come to you as one of the leading subject matter experts in this field, and they have you know 20 years of 25 years of training and by the time they get to you and here i am with that i can't read a note i can remember i went to africa and it was we must have been had this weird connection because i was thinking about this the whole time i was going to tell you i i can't do this anymore this is a waste of your time it's a waste of my i think i even said that i just said natalie this you are wasting your time with me you are such a, this Incredible teacher, and I, I don't know why you're even spending time with me uh, because this is not working. And I mean, do, I don't. Do you remember that? Do you sent me an email when, while I was in Africa, and and where I had had been thinking, I'm just going to tell her this isn't working. I can't do that. I can't do it, and it's a waste of her time, my time. And you said, let's let's reconnect. Let's go back and look at some of this. And what you did during that time was so transform, tra- transformative for me is that you didn't, you knew, you saw how I learned. This is your superpower and that this is why you're such an amazing teacher at, at, in your DNA, is that you saw how I learned and you built curriculum so that I could understand what you were trying to teach me, not the other way around, not here. I'm going to force this on you. I'm going to force this work on you. And you reworked your, this curriculum that you and I have since pursued over the last two years. And it has been amazing.
0: This is part of why I wanted to apprentice to Randy Gardner, that he had so many differentiated methods. It's this like gigantic pedagogical toolbox with different strategies for explaining things. I tell my, cause I, I do a fair amount of coaching now of like music education students and future teachers. And one thing I'll always reference with them or sort of an image I'll give them is I'll say, have you been to a foreign country where they don't speak English? And most of them or some of them have. And I'll, I'll say, have you ever tried to interact with somebody who does not speak English and you ask them something in English, and they kind of look at you like, you know, I, I don't get it. What, uh. And then you just repeat yourself slower and louder, right? Where's the train station?
1: Where
0: is the train station? It's like, it doesn't matter how slowly you say it or how many times, or how loudly, they're still not going to understand English, right? But we tend to, a lot of, especially novice teachers, tend to, tend to teach that way. Like, okay, this didn't work the first time. I'm not saying, like, sometimes you do just need to repeat something. But, like, if you just keep hammering the same, like, well, you know, that's the the definition of insanity, right? Is doing the same thing and expecting different results. So, like, if something's not working with a student, don't just do it over and over again and expect different results. You have to be intuitive about listening to that student one of the other things I say to them is that the student is the curriculum, right? Uh, not to a certain extent, of course. There's a canon. There's certain objectives that need to be universal and need to be applied to everyone. But in terms of your methodology, you have to be willing and flexible to listen and intuit and and be really present with the student if you want to. If you want to really communicate with them and, and to make a difference, Differenti- differentiated methods are are so 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 important. So uh, your lessons are totally different than everybody else's lessons
1: sure. in a good way.
0: You know? You, you um,
1: are an amazing teacher, Natalie, that has, you've changed my life forever. And not just, and I, I mean, I really want this to be the essence of this recording that it, it's not just that you taught me music theory, that, uh, yeah, you, you've taken me from ground zero to this, to being able to read complex music. and. You and I sing in every key, and I mean, we're doing some amazing things that even when I talk to musicians, they, they think that's amazing. But you have taught me to be I mean, you've taught me about discipline. You've taught me about allowing myself to fail and and learning from those failures and and the courage necessary to to do something new and and then, I mean, just other things. I mean, recognizing patterns My, I think differently because of you. I, I, and I, there's a lot to this of that. I think is, and I tell you this a lot that, uh, pl- playing the Alphorn is meditative and spiritual for me and it's creative. It's a creative outlet for me. And I play with this big group. That's amazing. And I, it's taught me teamwork and it's taught me just, I can't tell you how transformative that our time together has been for me as a a person not just that you've taught me music theory but you've taught me these skills that i just uh, um, it's invaluable and i'm so grateful so humbled to have this opportunity to work with you every every week you're amazing
0: well the the gratitude and the admiration goes absolutely both ways and you know, as a broader point, I think it's so important for teachers to learn from their students as well. And if all my students had even an ounce of your tenacity, the things that they could do, its it's been remarkable to watch you. And like I said, you have every reason, 12 meetings a day and your travel schedule and everything else, you have every reason to be not nearly as dedicated as you are. And, you know, you have absolutely made it a priority in your life to to dedicate yourself to this and really spend the time to do it well. And when I tell people that you went from not being able to match pitch or sing to now being able to sing entire pieces on solfege from memory, they're, they're like their eye pop out of their head. They're like, are you kidding me? And so I could, I have only guided you, you have done the work and uh, and really made it your own. And and so it's been inspiring for me to watch that as well. So I am, I am also, like said, mutually grateful and, and admire. I, there's nobody that I, would, I admire more than you.
1: And I feel the same way. You're one of my favorite people in the whole world. Can I ask you one more question? What do you do when you're not teaching, writing, performing? What do you do for your creative outlet?
0: You know what? I've really, and Sean's going to laugh because he knows that I love to eat. I learned how to cook during the pandemic. So I got married during the pandemic, so that was part of the motivation for it. But I've always, loved, like said, I love food, and, eat. and just decided that this was my time, especially because nobody's going to restaurants, right? So I absolutely love cooking. That is like my at the end of the day, like getting to make dinner. Uh, my <laughs> husband jokes he's like the luckiest guy ever because you know other people want to do takeout or whatever. I'm like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cook dinner. So cooking is kind of becoming my favorite thing. I run. I also run a lot. That's sort of my, like, if my brain, it just feels like it's going to explode. <laughs> I, I live very close to Lake Michigan, so I get to run on the lakefront trail. That is my therapy. Sort of like Sean skis. I, I get out and, um, and run. So it's cooking and running. Those are, like, my two, my two favorite favorites.
1: This was so fun, Natalie. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for working with me, not giving up on me teaching me so much about myself and about just these different skills that I would never have learned. You're amazing. You're you are such a gifted musician, author and teacher, most of all. And I will forever be grateful for this. I you did this concert. Not too long ago, and one of your teachers, you got to perform with him, and he said, "This is my student." I mean, he—you could he just tell him so proud. This is my student, student Dr. Natalie Grana. That's my fantasy is that someday you and I are going to be performing together, and you're going to say, "It's my student." <laughs> so- oh my gosh, it will absolutely
0: happen. You—you you and I have like two or three things at least that we're going to be performing together this year, so.
1: Thank you so much, Natalie, you're amazing. I really appreciate you taking this time with us.
0: Oh, this is a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Okay, take care. See you. Take
0: care.